my hope and prayer is that we all will meet in the glories of heaven and be able to sing praise to Christ. But let me tell you in as clear, in as plain words as I can, if you are not found in Christ on earth while you live, you will not be in heaven. So it's imperative to run to Christ, cast yourself upon Him by faith, trust in all of His goodness that is given to you by faith. If you would be saved, that's what you must do. There's no other way. So I want you to join me this morning in the second chapter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. And if you will permit me a few minutes here of introduction, we're going to look at verse 20, a familiar verse. I want to start by asking you a question. How is it going with you? How are you doing? I'm not talking about how's it going at work. I'm not talking about how is it going with your family, though I... I'm curious about that and pray for that for you. My question goes much deeper. How is it going with you spiritually? Are you prospering in the things of God? You know, the Apostle John, in his third epistle, one of the verses that's tucked away in there, his desire is that it would go, go as well with the body as it is with the soul. Now, if you make that equation that John makes... Would you want it to be going as well with your body as it is with your soul? If there is a direct correlation between how your soul is prospering and then the condition of your body, would you be well satisfied that there was a direct link? I think most of us honestly are going to say that I'm very thankful that there is not a direct correlation. There is great relationship between the soul and body, obviously. But we can be languishing spiritually and otherwise altogether healthy physically. That's the way God has made us. So if you answer the question, well, it's going fairly well with me. I'm doing all right. Can I submit to you a couple of tests, three actually, that might shed some light as to how it's really going with you? You know, we say in different contexts that talk is cheap. So let's let's bring that over into this discussion. So here my first here's my first question for you. And I'm I'm giving you these based upon the fact that these are going to unveil, really, the attitude and state of our heart before the Lord. What is your appetite for the Word of God? What is your appetite for the Word of God? And I'm referring there both to your personal reading and study. Do you read the Scriptures at home? Do you read them to your children? But also, what is your appetite for the Word of God in a setting like this? 
to hear the word of God preached. If you do not have an appetite for the word, if you don't have an appetite for the word, then if you answer the question, it's really going spiritually well for me, I don't think you've been honest with yourself. You've got some type of deception going on in your heart. It cannot go well spiritually for anyone if you do not have an appetite for the word. And I know our appetite goes up and down. And there are seasons of life where we can't read enough, we can't study enough, we can't hear enough preaching. It's it's consuming us, and that's the way it should be. And there are other seasons of life for various reasons where, you know, we can take or leave the scriptures. If we find ourselves in that condition, then we need to to recognize it is not going well spiritually for me. And I need to seek remedy for that. I need to pray, beg, plead with the Lord that he would restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That the scriptures to me again would be beautiful and that they would be more profitable profitable for me than, than silver or gold or honey or whatever it may be. So that's the first question. The second is very akin to it. What is your appetite for the people of God? What is your appetite for the people of God? And I'm going to to go out on a limb here. But it's a biblical limb, so I'm not scared to crawl out on it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you do not have a desire for the people of God, it is not well spiritually for you. The Lord has redeemed a people, not a person. The Lord has redeemed a body, not just an individual member. The Lord has redeemed an innumerable host unto himself. And what we get on a day like today, the Lord's Day, is to be a little foretaste of heaven. I realize it's not always that way. We come in, we bring our sin in this place with us. Thankfully, when we get to heaven, no more sin, right? We come into a place like this, we bring all of our distractions, all of our worries, all of these different things. And But that should not diminish at all the, the truth and the reality that this day for us, the Lord's Day, should be a little taste of what heaven is going to be like. Worshiping Christ as fully being redeemed by Him. All of life being centered around him. He himself being the very light. There's going to be no need for the sun any longer. The third part of this, the third question. What is your appetite? What is your desire for prayer? And here again, I'm referring to private and corporate times of prayer. Do you pray? Do you go into your closet They're represented, I think, by Jesus, not just an actual small room in your house, but somewhere quiet, somewhere alone. Whether it's rising early, whether it's staying up late, whether it's singling out a a portion of your day to pray. Do you pray? And so let me put all of these together. If we say that it's going well spiritually for us. We have no appetite for the word, no desire to be with the people of God, and we're not praying. We're deceiving ourselves. It's just really that simple. Sometimes things can be too simple. 
Sometimes things are right out there on the surface and they're just too simple and we try to mask over them. It takes help and grace of the Spirit of God to, to really examine your heart with these questions. I realize, man, fences go up quick. They do. And, and some would respond to those, well, you legalistic preacher. You're telling me I have to read my Bible, go to church and pray, or I can't be a good Christian. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Because I tell it to myself. Call me a legalist if you will. But let's talk about it. And we can go to chapter and verse for each one. And God giving us grace, God giving us help, we can come to the same conclusion. So... I think it's a given we can't truly desire the Lord while at the same time not desiring the things of the Lord. These are the things that Christ loves. He is the word of God himself. He died for the church and he died to open the throne room of heaven for us. These are the things that are closest and most dear to his heart. How could we as his people not have them close and dear to our heart as well? If he is in us, and perhaps I should say since he is in us, then our desires over time will become more and more and more in tune with his desires. And we will begin to look more and more like Christ, obviously, not physically, but in here. That part of me that you can't see externally that part of you that I can't see externally will begin to look more and more like Christ. So a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, we looked at the 10th verse of Psalm 81. That verse says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. You remember that verse? I said then and I'll repeat it here that this is an invitation of sorts to live the abundant life. An invitation of sorts to come and to receive all that Christ would give you. And then we looked at these words by an author. These are not my words. He says, the abundant life is not just that the believer is physically alive but that Jesus Christ is alive in him. The abundant life is more than what you possess physically. The abundant life that Jesus speaks about in John chapter 10, when he said, I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly, he's referring there to life eternal, spiritual. And if you read John chapter 10, material possessions aren't even on the table. But yet when we hear preaching about the abundant life or we hear teaching about the abundant life, especially in the day and time which we live, it's all perverted. It's all materialistic. It's all about prosperity. It's all about being healthy. Some of the most godly people you will know will die from cancer. Some of the people who live closest to Christ will die young. Did they live the abundant life? Maybe more so than the man who lives to be 90 
and has millions of dollars in the bank. I can say certainly more so. So we, we have this, this world system so embedded in our thinking. That's why our minds need to be renewed. The world system is so embedded in our thinking. We make correlations like if you're healthy and have a lot of money, you're living the abundant life. What about poor Lazarus? Remember the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Would you have ever looked at Lazarus and said he is living the abundant life? I mean, he was laid at the gate of the rich man. He ate, he ate what the dogs eat. But let that event which happens to every man come, what happened? He died. The rich man died. Lazarus went to heaven, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man went straight into the pit of hell. How abundant was his life then? He was in that place where the, the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched. Gehenna. Jesus referred to it as Gehenna, which is a reference to the unending burning garbage heap that lay outside the city. Day by day, a new load of, of garbage was taken out. That fire burned. It never died. That's a picture that Jesus used to teach us of what hell is like. Hell is real. Hell is real. It's not a figment of Christ's imagination. It's not something that he made up to scare people into coming to faith. Hell is real. It must be. Because if you reject the goodness of God, if you reject his grace, if you reject his mercy, and you remain in your sin, then the justice of God tells us that that must be punished. And God is just for creating a hell and then really actually sending people there who die in their sins. Doesn't that truth make the gospel of Christ all the more glorious? That there is a way to be saved? That there is a way to escape the fire of hell? There is a way to escape everlasting torment? There is a way to escape that place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, and that way is in Christ Jesus alone. We have a, a great, there is a great truth in Galatians chapter 2 that, quite frankly, I'm just not sure that we grasp onto as we ought. At least I'll speak for myself. I don't. And that is what Paul says in this 20th verse of the second chapter. And if you will, just look with me at that one verse. We're going to read some before and after, but, but just read that verse with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's, let's stop here and pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we've read a tremendous truth. You've given it to us in this letter. Lord, help us to see it fully, clearly. Reveal it to us, Lord. We've read it so often. We've memorized it. We can quote it. We've heard sermons. We've done Bible studies. Lord, let us hear it afresh and anew this morning. 
Please don't let the familiarity of the verse keep it undercover. We pray and ask it for Christ's sake. We ask it in his name. Amen. So Christ lives in me. I'm reading a book by Hugh Martin. It's just a compilation of sermons. No central theme. It's just some of his choice. Somebody went to his sermons and pulled out what they thought were the best, some of the best, and put them in a book. And the very first chapter in this book is a sermon about this verse, really about this phrase, phrase, Christ lives in me. And he says this. This is either a marvelous assertion of religious mysticism or... It is the simple expression of spiritual fact. Which do you suppose it is? Is this a marvelous assertion of religious mysticism? No, it's spiritual fact. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this immediately applies to you. Jesus Christ lives in you. And so let's, before we go any further, let's clearly set down what the scriptures reveal to us about how this comes to happen. You are not naturally born with Christ living in you. You do not naturally come into this, into this life with the Spirit of God residing in your heart. We come into life... A product of the fall of man. Romans chapter 5 tells us and sheds light on Genesis chapter 3. When Adam sinned in the garden by doing that which the Lord had clearly told him not to do. That mankind fell into sin. And that every person that has followed Adam. Being a direct descendant. Is sinful. We have inherited that sin nature. Then it doesn't take us long in this life to figure out that we're really sinful too, right? We, we lie. We do those things the scripture tells us not to do. We covet. We lust. We do all the things that the scriptures tell us are sinful. And so when we compile those two things, we're really guilty before God on both counts. God considers them one, but really, from our perspective, there's two. We have Adam's sin, and we have our own sin, so we are sinful before God, and there's not a thing in this world that we can do about it. Nothing. That's what, that's what makes the gospel the gospel. We say the gospel is good news. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that while we were without strength, Christ died for us. While we had nothing to offer, Christ died for us. So Christ living in you, how does this happen? Well, it happens by faith. Isn't that what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Saved from what? Well, we might say saved from hell, and that's true. 
We might say we've been saved from sin. That's also true. But we could also say probably the highest expression of our salvation is to be saved from the wrath of a holy God. That he will pour out on all of those who do not have faith in his son. So to finish that verse, Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you know the truth of that. If we could save ourselves, in whom would we glory? We wouldn't sing what we've sang this morning. We wouldn't say, all glory be to Christ. We would sing, all glory be to me. I've saved myself. I've done so much good in this world that my sins have been atoned for. They've been covered. So the scriptures confines all men under sin. And it tells us very clearly that we cannot be saved by what we do. We've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Faith is the gift of God. Let me prove it to you. Where would faith arise in one who is dead in sin and transgressions? What root is there in a man in that condition that faith is going to spring up out of? So we're saved by faith, by grace through faith. Gracious gift of God, not according to our works, but it's also true to say we're saved by the working of the Spirit. We spent a lot of time, several weeks, four or five weeks in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, as we studied that, we got down to that part of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it will. You can't see it. You can see the effects of it, but you can't see it. In that sense, Jesus was teaching Nicodemus that salvation is shrouded in great mystery. It's a mysterious work of God. It's a gracious work of God. When he regenerates a person, he gives them a new heart. And that new heart is then able to respond to God. Paul would write also in in Corinthians... The natural man cannot discern the things of God. Why? They're spiritually discerned, and the natural man is spiritually dead. He needs life. The Lord regenerates him. That word basically means to give new life. And when that new life comes, then we are awake and aware to the things of God, and we can respond to them. What happens if you were to take a needle and to stick it in the heel of a corpse? No response whatsoever. You take a needle and stick it in my heel, there's going to be a response. Why? Because I'm alive. I'm alive. This work of the Spirit in us is mysterious. After we're saved, the Spirit then begins to sanctify us. And that word, it's a big word. You children, don't be confused by that word. All that word means is that the Spirit of God is making us more like Jesus. How does he do that? This is one of the the effects of Christ being in me. 
Christ is in me in the sense that the Spirit of God is in me. The Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of truth. All of those are ways of referring to the same Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit of God comes and takes up residence in my heart. And what does he do there? He does two things, basically, though we could... You probably talk about dozens or hundreds of things. We can boil them all down to two things. The Spirit of God is doing in me the exact opposite of what my unredeemed humanity once did in me. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that the unrighteous, unrighteous men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so we could say there that unredeemed mankind is acting according to his nature, right? He's holding down the truth of God. He's trying to keep it under because it convicts him. He's trying to keep it under because it not only convicts him. When conviction comes, you know what it's like to live under conviction. If the Lord is really working in your heart and you're convicted, it can be fairly miserable. So the unredeemed man is acting according to his nature. Romans chapter 1 eventually gets so far down that path that the Lord just gives them over, just turns them over to themselves. The Spirit of God in me and in you is doing the exact opposite. Because, you see, the redeemed man also acts according to his nature. Unredeemed man suppresses the truth. Redeemed man glories in the truth. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in me. Christ is in me. The Word of God is in my heart. The Spirit of God, Christ in me, is suppressing the unrighteous thoughts and deeds. See, it's just the opposite now. Unredeemed man suppress the truth. The redeemed man, the spirit in him, is suppressing unrighteousness. How does he do this? Well, through conviction of sin, through discipline if necessary, by increasing the appetite or initially giving and then increasing the appetite for truth. So we could say it this way. The Holy Spirit is promoting, cultivating righteousness in me. He is exalting it. That doesn't mean that we don't still struggle against sin. Surely we do. Surely we fail and fail often. Surely we miss the mark. That's the definition of what sin is. It's to transgress the laws and the ways of God. And then we've missed the mark. We've come up short. But we can take heart in our struggle against sin because the one who defeated death and sin lives in us. So we do those things we're told in Scripture to do. We persevere. We press on. We stand firm in the faith. We fight the good fight of faith. We wrestle. But if you're looking still at this verse... Let me give you some of the consequences. And here, very honestly, I'm taking four points from that sermon that I read and using them as the headings and then just building my own thoughts off of them. So here are the four points. Here are the consequences of this truth 
that the Spirit of God, Christ himself, is living in you. I'm going to give those four to you and then come back and work through them. First of all, this secures our holiness. Secondly, it produces in us mutual love, mutual love among the members of Christ. Those two things are positive. It also does a third. It's the reason why we're persecuted. It's the reason why Jesus told us to expect persecution. And then fourthly, it's the hope. It is our hope of glory. So let's look at those one by one. The first being Christ in me ultimately means that I will, to some degree or another, and at some points in time more greatly than others, but I will live a holy life. I want to read you something out of this this, this book I've been telling you about. It's a little long, and most people would tell a preacher, don't read long stuff, you'll lose people. So let me tell you, don't get lost. When we're thinking about Christ living in us, and I'm reading this to you, there's no way I could improve it or or make it any better. And if I tried to quote it from memory, I'd get it all messed up. Christ is living in us. Our holiness is secured. This is what he says. Jesus will still be the same meek and lowly one in you that he was while he walked on earth. He will still be in you the same kind and condescending man, God-man, that he was on earth. He will be the same in duty in you as he was on earth. In you, he will still go about doing good. In and through you. He will hunger. And yearn after lost souls. In you. Just as he did on earth. All of those things and so many more. Jesus Christ is. Living through me. Just as he lived on earth. The last sentence. He will reproduce himself in you. I want you to think about that. Jesus will reproduce himself in you. Of course we have to have some boundaries. We're not saying. Nor does this man saying. That he is reproducing himself fully. And so he qualifies it by saying. He is reproducing his humiliation in you. The fact that he condescended and came to heaven. All of those desires that we read. He is reproducing in me. He's reproducing in you. Why do we, why do we yearn that lost souls might be saved? Is that just, is that, does that come from me? No, it comes from Christ in me. Christ longed to, pe- to see people saved. He longed to see people come to a knowledge of the truth. When I am kind to you or vice versa, does that come from me? Don't give me that credit. I'm not that way. That comes from Christ in me. All glory be to him. 
When I act the opposite, that's me. When I'm quick to be angered, that's me. That's not Christ in me. When I have no yearning for the souls that are lost to be saved, that's not Christ in me. That's me. And so we live in this life in in this great mixture of bearing a sinful nature, but yet having Christ reside in here. He will reproduce himself in you. And the second part of this is he will represent himself in you as a Christian. When we leave this place and we go out into the world, Christ being in me, it's right for us to see ourselves as the scripture tells us that we really are his representatives, his ambassadors. He is reproducing himself in us so that he will so that we will represent him into the world around us. So that's the first part of this. The consequences or the results of Christ living in me. I will to some degree or another and Lord willing on an increasing level live a holy life. But secondly, this is the reason for a mutual love among the members of the church. I said this on Wednesday evening. I, I touched on a few of these things on Wednesday evening. Spent more time thinking about them. Preached a little of this yesterday and still thinking more on it this morning. The reason that the scriptures give us so many one another things to do, pray for one another, love one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, all of those things is so that we can express our love one to another. Why is it that I love you as a brother in the Lord? Why is it that you love one another and that there's mutual love amongst us all? Christ in me loves the Christ in you. The Christ in you loves the Christ in me. The Christ in you all loves the Christ in you all. We don't take credit for that. We are by nature impatient, easily offended, and want nothing to do in our natural selves with all of these one another things. Why? Because life's about me. Why would I give my time and express kindness to you? The only reason surely must be is because Christ in me sees a need that he wants to meet, that he will meet. That's why the the Spirit of God, Christ himself, the scriptures call us everywhere as the church to minister, to serve one another. I said this Wednesday as well, but I'll say it again. You have the same experience that we just had as a family this past weekend. We went into a place where we knew just a few people, about 100 people there. We might have known 12. But yet every conversation that we have, it's like, I really like this person. It's like we've been friends for years. We we hit it right off. Why is that? Christ in me, Christ in them, immediate communion. It doesn't matter what their interests are. And it really doesn't matter what our interests are. As long as we have Christ in common, we can have great fellowship. I'm going to say it. I was thinking whether I should or not. There should be nothing that brings people together in a, quote, church setting than Christ. Put all of your other 
things away. We need nothing else in common. We don't need the same desires in the world. We don't need the same hobbies. We don't need all of that. We need Christ, and we have immediate communion. Now, yeah, we can glory in the fact that outside of this we have some mutual things in common. That's great. But it's not necessary. My, my interests and Brad's can be totally different. And yet if we have Christ together, we're, we're brothers in the Lord. We have an immediate connection. The Christ in him, the Christ in me, ministering, serving to one another. And this is the product of Jesus Christ himself living in us. But let's get to the third point, which is not so positive. The third point being, this is the reason why we're persecuted. And again, let's be careful in this. All glory to Christ. I'm not persecuted because of me. There is nothing in me that is even good enough to suffer persecution. Nothing that I stand for. No truth in me outside of Christ living in me. That's why Jesus says, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Why? Because I'm going to be in you. I'm going to go to my Father, and then the Father and myself together, we're going to send the Spirit, and oh, by the way, it's better for you that this happens. The disciples were all perplexed. How in the world can that be better for Christ to go away? And Jesus said, because the Spirit then will come. And he called him the Helper. The Helper is going to come. So give Christ glory when you're persecuted. There is something in you that accords with Christ that the world Hates, doesn't like it at all. Is that what the Sermon on the Mount says? Blessed are you when you're reviled. Blessed are you when others speak ill of you. Blessed are you when you come under condemnation, when you come under persecution. Why? That's proof to me and proof to you that yes, Christ is in here. The fourth point, and we're going to wrap this up. The fourth point of the consequences or the results of Christ living in me is this is where the real foundation for our hope of glory comes from. Paul said that to the Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why do you have hope of glory? Because Christ is in you. Let me read you something else. This is the last time we're going to go to to Hugh Martin. And he's referencing here why we have a hope of glory and why we don't have that glory in its fullness here and now. There is a sense that we do, but it's coming more fully later. Let's listen to what he says. The Christ who now lives in you is not the Christ sitting in the fullness of his blessed reward, but... The Christ is laboring in the yoke and toil of his humble service. The Christ that lives in you is the Christ that went about Judea and Galilee, doing good and suffering evil, overcoming evil with good, enduring the contradiction of sinners against himself, living indeed a glorious life in the favor of his Father even then, but with his glory hidden. That's Christ in me now. We still... Suffer the same types of things he suffered while he lived on earth, yet we're not going to be crucified for it. But there is one day 
when the Christ who is in glory even now at the right hand of the Father, that Christ will be alive in me. Sin will be no more. That's why it's a hope of glory. There's still something to yearn for. As glorious as our salvation is while we live on this earth, there is still something to reach out after. There is still something to wait for. There is still something to to hope for. There is still something to know that is coming later that is so much better, so much better than this life. Christ in you. Let me read the verse again. I want to make one more, one more point and I'll, I'll close. The verse is this. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. Do you remember the context of that this verse is in. Let me give it to you very quickly. Peter and Paul. Verse 11, they're in Antioch. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul withstood him to his face. There was a confrontation between these two men of God. Do you remember the reason? Peter was being a hypocrite. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when the Jews came, he stopped. Paul said he was to be blamed because he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Peter was hypocritical in the fact that he saw this old distinction that the gospel completely obliterates and does away with as still intact. This Jew-Gentile distinction. Paul says he wasn't being straightforward about the gospel. So before them all, Paul rebuked him. We aren't given the the full picture, but we have every reason to believe that Peter repented. That Peter saw his error. Why? Christ was in him. Christ was in him. Then Paul goes on this long excursus about what it means that Christ is in me. That's why there's all this talk about the law here. Because he's, he's rethinking this conversation that he had with Peter. And he's saying, has nothing anymore any longer to do with law keeping or Jew Gentile distinction. It has everything to do with the grace of God given to me in Christ. He says that old part of me is dead. It's been crucified with Christ. Yeah, I'm still alive, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, I want to close by asking the question again. How's it going with you? How are you doing spiritually? I trust that the reminder that Christ is living in you will bolster your faith, 
that there might be a revival in your soul. And that we might go out and live for Christ. All glory be to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth that Jesus Christ, your son, holy, harmless, spotless, exalted even now, is alive in us as your people. Lord, press that truth more fully upon us as we continue to think on it. Bring it to the forefront of our mind more and more. Help us to see also the consequence of it, that we are your ambassadors everywhere we go because we have professed faith and made it known that we are Christ's followers, that we are representing him. Lord, may others see Christ in us. May it produce within us a great love for one another, a great desire to serve one another. Lord, I pray that those that know nothing of this reality, and it is reality, those that don't know it yet would know it soon, would know it even today. Lord, I pray that you would do that mysterious work, that you would draw men into yourself. They would come believing and believing Repentance and in repentant believing to the feet of Christ, casting themselves upon him as their only hope. Lord, we pray you'd make it so. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.